Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. Yeah, we're going to get the clicker. We're on the, the series on the Sermon on the Mount and I have to can't do without my flip chart. Mightn't use it, but I just can't do without it. Um, and uh, tonight is a, is a massive subject, as you well know. We're um, journeying through in the 166 series, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And someone said to me this week, Phil, why do you, why do, you do divorce? Why not just skip it? <laughs> uh, so I thought that was a really good idea, actually, at the time. But um, when, you, when you go through a passage of Scripture, verse by verse, you can't just pick out and there's some of these passages that you need to wrestle with, and you need to try and figure out exactly what's going on. So, yeah, we'll use my flip chart. So we're going to talk about the big subject of divorce, right? Um, and look at uh, adultery as well. So I know David did a, a great job last night, last week, um, even though he did call our series 666. But we forgive him for that. So it's not 666. It's... Uh, one six six, all right. Um, we did correct it rather quickly. I don't know. If, I think he's in Dublin tonight. So, um, no, no, not that day. Another one. So, um, let's look at the passage. Here it is. It's in Matthew five thirty one and thirty two. It has been said, um, Jesus is a speaker. Now, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What a passage. Um, I was in Portland, Oregon about five years ago, and uh, I have a church out there that I've followed for many, many years, well over 20 years, and whenever they do a wedding rehearsal, they don't do just a wedding rehearsal like we do, where you come and you rehearse the wedding. They do a, a rehearsal dinner and so what they do is uh, the couple come to rehearse their wedding, and um, they, they, they have a dinner, they have a meal together. And one of the guys who was in the church arrived at the um, rehearsal dinner, and just as he pulled up at the door of the dinner, all the family and friends are all gathered in for this meal. Just as he pulled up at the door, his mobile went, and he, answered his, he looked at his mobile, it was his fiancée. And he answered the phone, and his fiance says to him, um, his fiance says to him, what time are you picking me up? And he went, uh, you know what you do, boys, you know what you do? And women who can read your mind said, you're already there, aren't you? And he, and he goes, yes, I'm already here. And she goes, you forgot about me. You forgot to call for me at the rehearsal dinner. And he goes, yeah, I did. But he says, I was so excited. You know, it's backtracking now, trying to fix it. He said, I was so excited about seeing you and about getting, um, about just getting married, and I just forgot to pick you up. And um, the wedding did go on, glad to say. She didn't postpone the wedding running, and they got it all fixed. But in, in this story today, these people in this story had, an imp- they, they, they had, a, they had a focus and impact, but did no focus on in intimacy. The Pharisees were all about impact. They're all about religious laws. They're all about the party, 
but not about the person. They were all about the rehearsal, but they never thought about the, the people in the rehearsal. They were all in for the wedding party. They just forgot about the groom. This is what happened here. And so um, this, this is one of those tough subjects. It is a, a relatively tough subject, all right? And um, sometimes I think these passages are a bit like eating granola for breakfast, all right? They, um, it's not as good for you as a big dirty fry, or it is better for you than a big dirty fry. It just doesn't look as good. It just doesn't look as good. And sometimes when you get into passages like this, they, they just maybe don't look as, um, is it okay to say, as sexy and as, as, as clear and as powerful as maybe some other ones. But um, I, I came in this this week, which is interesting, um, a husband's brain and a wife's brain. So I know that people will look at this very differently, and um, especially men and women will look at this completely different. And this is so true, I have to admit, all right? Um, now, marriage is really special to me. I say sometimes when I talk about marriage that I've only went with two girls in my life, and I've married them both. Now, I know that sounds weird, but let me explain in case you don't know me. I was married to Jill for 27 years, and she died. Now I've been married to Lorraine for 12 years come in April, so I never went with anybody else outside those two girls. So, um, so there you go. And so marriage is really special. It's something very powerful. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight because it's really important. And some of you will see this from different sides, a bit like this, just because you're right does not mean I am wrong. You know, you just haven't seen it from my side. And all of us in here, in some shape or form, probably have got affected by divorce. We either know divorced people, or mom and dad have got divorced, or a friend in college or school has got divorced, or maybe you um, are in the middle of a divorce or have been divorced. So it's really, really important that we talk about this. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is talking his way through the Ten Commandments. We know that by now. He's making his way through the Ten Commandments. A couple of weeks ago, whenever I spoke to you about anger, he was talking about the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill. That's what he was doing when he was talking about anger in this same chapter. And he was saying, and while people were all looking around and saying, well, I haven't killed anybody, Jesus was talking about a deeper issue. He was taking this anger issue deep into the heart. He said, if you hate your brother, then you've already murdered in your heart. So Jesus is talking about deep issues. And so when he's talking about resentment and, and hatred, he's saying, you're committing murder already in your heart. So you've got to understand the context in what he's talking. So in this one, he's into number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. He's into that commandment. And there was this pious attitude in this, this, this society in which Jesus presents himself on how these men treated their wives. And Jesus was challenging heart issues. He was coming against that. And he said, if you look at someone lustfully, then you've committed adultery. And David, as I said, did a great job in taking us through that last week. Jesus is calling us to holiness. That's what he's doing. He's calling us to holy living. He's calling. If you've fallen in a broken world that's loaded with immorality and all the sin going on, we've got to be really careful. We can buy into this sometimes, even in the stuff we watch on TV. Most of the stuff we watch, there's immorality. There's all kinds of interrelationships. There's affairs and all of this. And, and I'm not saying you lock yourself in a room and you never watch TV, but I'm saying don't, don't hang your discernment over the door. Just be careful around the idea of how you discern 
what's going on because it's really important. So it's a tough passage. It's lots of questions, lots of confusion. And I hope in some shape or form I might be able, if my voice lasts, to clear that up a little bit. But there's probably loads that I won't clear up. And, um, but here's the thing. Here's, here's the reason why. Sin complicates things. Sin complicates things. That's the problem. And any time we get off track of God's design, then in any area of life, it gets messy. And that's just, a, and we're all part of life. And, and it's not just divorce that things get messy in. Life makes a lot more sense when we do it God's way. We know that. And some people think we need to get back to the way things were in Jesus' day. Or people say that sometimes. And I think, are you, are you mad in the head? You, who would want to go back to that day? You wouldn't want to go back there. With the, the world that Jesus grew up was bloodthirsty and violent and filled with death and disease and prostitution and sexual sin and all kinds of paganism. And the Roman leaders had orgies and, and, and homosexual things going on in their palaces. And unlike this day in which we live, they didn't even hide it. They did it openly. It was an open display of this. And so... In the area of marriage, things probably couldn't have been worse than when Jesus was talking to these people right now. I don't know whether any of you have saw the box set AD. Anybody saw that? Cracker box set on, if you want a good box set, it's called AD. It's on Netflix and it's free. And um, it's really, really good. I've been watching it. And I tell you, it's good stuff. And it makes you realize just the day and age in which Jesus lived as something really powerful. So marriage, as I say, couldn't have been worse in this day. It was a, a marriage in Jesus' day had disintegrated to the point where it was no longer honored or cherished or valued in any way. It wasn't until death do us part. It was until I, the man, want rid of the wife. That's, that's the way it was. It was a man's world. Some of you women are thinking some things haven't changed. But the big part of the problem was that just women weren't valued. There was no value put in women. They had no rights. They were just treated as property. They were a piece of property. The one rabbi is quoted as saying, I wrote this down, I would rather be a Gentile or a dog than be a woman. So you can see this is the world um, that Jesus had, had come in on. And one of the things that's so amazing about Jesus' ministry is how much value he placed in women. He valued women, and he did this for, and he did, he, this is like, it was rubbing the noses of the religious leaders. They just didn't like this. He loved and he valued them, which was not the norm. He reacted personally with them. He, he stood up for women, which didn't happen in his day. Um, and, and Christianity in general sometimes can get the rap for being a little bit male chauvinist, um, but Jesus and the gospel, they've been liberating, Jesus has been liberating women for 2,000 years. And even our church, who we believe in women in ministry and with female elders, you know that, we still slide to the male-dominated. And Dave and I have chatted about this often, even in some of our lead teams and on our staff team, we're probably pretty well balanced, but even some of our teams, uh, yeah, but uh, enough said. And so we, we've got to work on that because there was a loss of a view of women, there was a loss of a view of marriage. So it stands to reason that if woman is my property, then I should be able to treat her however I want. This is, this is the mindset. She's mine. And if I don't want her anymore, then I can get rid of her. I can throw her out. And that was very common practice. It was known as putting her away. That's what they would have said. Or, and, and if the man was no longer interested, for whatever reason, he just kicked her out. And um, she, would, she would be left defenseless. 
She would have no rights. She would have no job. She would have no place to live. She was often forced into prostitution um, or even into some kind of illegal relationship. So, so I'm trying to contextualize what's happening here. Rather than just get a verse and say, that's what it means, that you can't divorce for any other thing other than sexual immorality, which people do. And the, the right-wingers do that. They do that very, very powerfully. And so we've got to be very careful how we read this in the context and in the culture of what Jesus was writing in. So this caused a lot of problems, as I said. We need to keep a little bit of an open mind, I think, and I'll talk through that. Because if we build our theology out of this passage, then we just get it all legalistic about it. Now, in this day, an age in which we're talking about, people didn't read the law. They didn't read the law. They, they, they followed rabbis. They didn't read the law for themselves. They were largely, um, the, by, by default, they couldn't read or write, and they relied on the teachers of the law to interpret the law for them. And into that setting, there was two big rabbinic um, leaders in this field. One was called Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L, and he was, um, he was a, a, a liberal interpreter of the law. And then there was another guy called Shammai, and his name spelled S-H-A-M-M-A-I. And Hillel and Shammai were a bit like our Sinn Féin and D-U-P, near the twain would ever meet. And, um, and, and it was a bit like that. There were, there were sort of two wild extremes on this whole subject. And... Um, and as I say, Hillel, he was a sort of liberal guy, and Shammai, he was a conservative scholar, and he said he took a very narrow view on divorce, that this was the only thing that the law would allow. And so while Hillel, he would, he would argue the fact that divorce was allowable for every and any reason, so including burning the toast or making the egg yolk too runny, um, Shammai insisted that adultery, sex outside of marriage, was the only out for divorce. So it wasn't um, bad cooking or buying too many shoes. Oops, did I say that? Um, or um, too mouthy or, or, or too little attention. And what you've got to understand, again, the culture that Jesus grew up in was a very fiery and feisty culture. Like if you go back in this chapter, you will find Jesus saying stuff like, if your eye offend you, get a sharp pointy object doesn't go into the graphics like that, but that's what he means. And just poke your eye out. Or he says, if your hand offend you, he says, go to screw fix, get a really sharp hatchet and chop it off. Now, we don't take that literal. I, I, I don't see many, too many people with empty eye sockets here tonight or with a, a, a loose arm in your jacket. If, if we were to do that or take that literal, it probably would get us through to dinner time, wouldn't it? We'd have no eyes and no arms. But, so we don't take that literal, and you need to understand this culture. Jesus is challenging us how we react to sin. He's challenging us to check our heart. He's saying he's calling us to be people of the Word. And less and less today in the world that I grew up in many years ago, is the, less and less today is the deal sealed with a handshake. Now there's an army of lawyers who, who um, look at every possible loophole, um, prenuptial agreements signed before going into a marriage, so there's an out clause, broken promises that hurt other people. And divorce is such a reality in this room. I know it is. And um, parents that have divorced, 
Maybe you've been divorced yourself, as I said earlier. And so this is close to home as it's going to get. Hence, I'm doing this talk. Dave and I chatted about this. Dave hasn't been well, as you know, and we decided that either him or I would do this. That Because um, we didn't feel it was fair to ask anyone else. And so I'm desperately nervous about tonight. I have to say, I've been desperately nervous all week about it because I can get it wrong and I don't want to. I don't want to get it wrong. And I want to do three things, all right? Here's simply what I want to do tonight. Without giving you the whole theology of it, I want to do three things. Firstly, I don't want anyone in this room leaving feeling condemned or guilty, all right, over a failed relationship. It happens. Some people say to me, Phil, do you believe in divorce and remarriage? I always say, I don't believe in the flu. But I get it every now and again. So it doesn't really matter what you actually believe about it. It matters about how you deal with it. And you need to boil it into the Scripture. So I don't want anybody leaving here feeling condemned or guilty over a failed relation. Secondly, I don't want anybody feeling trapped in an abusive and failing marriage. Now, I know I'm going to shock some of you in saying that, but I don't want anybody feeling trapped. And I'll talk about this in a moment or two, in, a, in, a, in an abusive or failing marriage. And thirdly, thirdly, in a sort of a paradoxical way to that, I don't want anyone to go away feeling that marriage vows are anything other than permanent and binding before a holy God. So you can understand the complexities of all of that. And some will think I'm too liberal in this, and some will think I'm too hard, and that's just the nature of subject. So I'm going to try to Bible this as much as I can. So I'm sort of apologizing up front to you. In the UK at the moment, 45% of marriages end in divorce. Um, second and third marriages creep up as high as high 70s, 75, 78%. Some of the stats would tell you that divorce in the church is every bit as high as divorce in the world, and that's not right. Okay, it's a lie, and it, is, it has been um, declared a lie. It's not as high in the church. It, it's, it's still high. It still happens. And so for young people here tonight over in this section where you usually sit, I know you're filtered throughout. Um, I want you to get this right. I want you to think about your partners. I want you to think about not madly running into marriage, but running into it with a holy fear and with a reverence and knowing that you need to get this right. And we also need to realize tonight that we're a healing community. That's what we're called to. We're called to be a healing community to people who are going through this, to kids and to adults that are affected terribly and damaged. I've counseled people in this arena for now 25 to 30 years, and I've never seen a good divorce. I've never, I've never counseled a good one. I've never counseled a couple that after it was over, I said, well, that was great. That worked out really good. Never yet. All right. You see, um, I, uh, Tanya Gold writes this. Tanya Gold writes in The Guardian, and she grew up in a home of a divorced mom and dad, and she said she uses the term about living with the emotional shrapnel. That little phrase caught me. She says, I grew up in a world of emotional shrapnel. She told this story of her mom was so agitated about when she would, she'd be driving along the road and she would see a, a wedding car or a bride getting out of a car. She would screw down the window and shout, don't do it, love. <laughs> she says, that's the world she, she grew up in. And so she writes this, this is just, I quoted her, 
She said that 30 years ago, it was 25 and 23. So today, the average age for a man to marry is 30, and a woman is 28. 30 years ago, it was 25 and 23. I got married at 19. Uh, and it's into that generation that got divorced in a sort of almost like a, 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 a in mass. And the more mature you are upon marriage, the less scope there is for disappointment. But the main reason that divorce is dying is that marriage is dying also. So I looked at the Northern Ireland stats, and the Northern Ireland stats have been in around 2,800, around 3,000 a year from about the last 10 years, about 3,000 divorces a year. And the last couple of years, I've noticed it's dropped it to five, to four, to three. Last year, I think it was 2,040. You can pick this up on Google. And the reason divorce is is getting lower is because marriage is less people are actually getting married. But here's the thing, here's the thing. People who cohabit are four times more likely to divide than people who marry. <laughs> people who cohabit, who just live together without the covenant and, and strength of marriage actually are four times more likely when the chips are down, just say, well, she's not in hold us together anyway, so let's just go. And so there's something about this. There's something. So Jesus in our passage is talking about sexual immorality. He's saying that the, the act so violates the covenant of marriage and violates the other person so deeply that in this instance, you are permitted to leave. That's what he's saying. And he's actually saying, he actually doesn't even recommend it at that point or endorse it. He just says he allows it. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? doesn't recommend it. He doesn't endorse it. He just says you're allowed to. So if there's sexual immorality, that's what he's saying. Now, there are two Old Testament passages that are in the Mosaic Law. One's very common and one you maybe have never seen before that will maybe give you a little bit of a different view, and we're going to look at both of those. The first one, the most common one, is this one that Jesus uses in this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and he also uses this in Matthew 19. He says, if a man marries a woman, and this is, this is, not much fun in this tonight, sure there's not. I have no real jokes for you, sorry, but it is, it is a serious matter, all right? He said, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, um, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. Now, this is the go-to for many hardline Christians today. And um, this is the one that they'll use, and they'll use, the, oh, there's, you know, sexual immorality is the only way. Interestingly enough, this is the one that Hillel actually latched on to and took a liberal approach on. So he took that little phrase, he took that little phrase, something indecent. And he said, for anything that would displease the man, that he could leave her, he could divorce her, for anything indecent. So, so the, the very thing that that the, the hardliners take today, Hillel, was, he was so liberal in this one, all right? And he said, again, meaning if she burned a toast or whatever, and when the Pharisees tried to trick Jesus in Matthew 19 about this teaching, Jesus comes back to them with force and clarity and shouts a fundamental no to this sort of loose ideology and, uh, about divorce. He says, no, you can't leave your wife for any silly nonsense. You can't leave your wife. You can't divorce her. You can't put her out for just what you say, something indecent, unless that is of a sexual nature. That's what Jesus is saying at this point. So, 
While I think God gives us a lot of grace, I think the scriptures actually start to get very clear around this. And to the answer, to answer their questions about divorce, Jesus actually texts in Matthew 19, he texts them back to God's original design. He texts them right back to one woman, one man, one flesh for life, divorce never being an option. It wasn't even in the picture. What God joins together, he says, no condition of man is ever supposed to separate. When God brings two people together and they form a little baby, you can't kill it. You just can't do that. He says, you don't have the authority. You don't have the right. And in the same way, when God takes two humans and brings them together and they become one flesh, the two become one, let no one kill that. Let no one tear it apart. That's what he's saying. That's how powerful this is. And so to understand God's will in divorce, you have to understand God's will for marriage. And there's two people submitting themselves to Christ and to each other, loving the heck out of each other for the rest of their lives. Sorry, I don't mean that if it offends someone. But that's just it, all right? Passionate about that. So there's no divorce in the plan. And God's plan for marriage is a lifelong covenant, not a contract based on performance. Now, I'm going to get to the other verse in a moment or two. He says, if you do this, if you do this, then I'll do this. If you, God said, if you do this, if you covenant to this, then I will come and I will bless so marriage isn't a transaction, all right? It's not contracting someone to cut their lawn. That's a transaction where you contract with a gardener and you pay him and he cuts your grass. That's not what this is. Marriage is a covenant to swear to God to be faithful in the death, no matter what happens. I watched my mom care for my dad for the last 20 years of his life. You know, many of you know my story. Dad took ill at 67, took Alzheimer's, and then... About the last 12 years of his life, he died at 87, but the last 12 years of his life, he was bedridden, he was incontinent, he couldn't respond in any shape or form. And Kenny and I and I watched our mom care for him day in and day out. He was at home, he never went into a, a home or a hospital. She cared for him at home. It was quite incredible. I always thought of that little verse in the Psalms, love and faithfulness come together. Love and faithfulness. I think one of the versions says, love and faithfulness, kiss. And I watched my mom care for my dad with nothing in return. He couldn't love her in return. As a matter of fact, in the early years of his Alzheimer's, the opposite was true. He was quite violent and physical to her. Um, so with nothing in return, she loved. Love and faithfulness came together because this was what happened. She was in a covenant with God. It's an Ephesians 5 picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. That's God's plan for marriage. Not a contract. It's a covenant. And when we see it done right, it's a beautiful thing. And Jesus says, the only reason we're even talking about divorce, he says, the only reason that we have divorce is because of your hard heart, he says in Matthew 19. That's the only reason we're talking about it. All right? And... Um, and I, again, I've never counseled a, a troubled marriage where there's not a hard heart somewhere. I've never counseled a troubled marriage where there's not a... Jesus is standing absolutely defiantly against the culture of the day of quickie divorce and, and the lack of commitment stuff. And he's saying, guys, you can't do it. All right, you just can't run out for whatever reason. Now, there's another Old Testament mosaic passage that probably most of you will never... I've seen, and preachers rarely go to it. And it's found in Exodus 21. And it says, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. 
If he does not provide her with these three things, she is free to go. It's where we get it out of our Westminster Constitution, love, cherish, and nourish. Um, they take it out of this verse. Now, this one's a bit like throwing a hand grenade into the, into the um, right-wing theology of you can't actually leave a person for anything, only sexual immorality. And when Paul writes in Ephesians 5, it's actually this one he has in mind. All right, that's why he talks about Jesus loving, nourishing, and cherishing the church. And this is where I'll step into controversy a little bit, and many may not agree with this, but that's okay. Now, let me clarify. Um, if you've been displeased with your spouse or fallen out of love, Jesus would say loudly, you're one flesh. That is not a reason to separate. If you're divorced, if you if you if you divorce over this, it's just adultery, he would say. All right? Jesus is strong in that kind of sort of quickie divorce culture, okay? Now, if you do, however, I want to suggest this to you, and don't shoot me in this. If there is constant physical, psychological, and emotional abuse in a marriage, then I think you must think very prayerfully if that's a healthy place to remain. That's my take on it, all right? And I've said it. If there's a constant physical, psychological, emotional abuse in a marriage, then you must think very prayerfully if that's a healthy place to remain. Many years ago, I had a lady come into my house. Jill was alive at the time, and she came to us for counsel. And as we were praying for her, I noticed her arm, a, a bruise on her arm, and, um, and I said to her, what happened, the bruise in your arm? And she covered it all up really quickly, like this here. And, um, and uh, so I said, tell me about this bruise. And we, 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 we teased this out. And eventually, she, she undone her, her sleeve, and she rolled her sleeve up. And her arms were completely covered in bruises. And her husband was beating her. And I said to her, is this, is this a one-off? No, she says, no, this is, a, this is constant. This goes on all the time. And I said to her, I said, you need to get out of there. And she said to me, oh, what about the principle of marriage? And I goes, when it comes to Jesus, the person is always more important than the principle. In John 4, when Jesus met a woman at the well who had five husbands, and the one she was living with now, number six, was not her husband, and she just met Man number seven, who was going to rock her world and change her life forever. Does any wonder it was a perfect number? All right? And Jesus broke every rule in the book. He broke every principle. Jews shouldn't speak to Samaritan. Men don't speak to women. You certainly don't speak to a woman like that. Jesus broke all the principles because the person is always more important than the principle. So that's just my take on it. And I know some of you will think I'm being a little bit liberal in this, but I'm just I'm saying what I think, all right? Um, again, the traditional position written down in the Westminster Confession and held by most evangelicals is that divorce is permissible on two grounds, sexual immorality and desertion. And in both cases, the, the marriage covenant is severed. In one case, because sexual intimacy has taken place with another person. And in the second case, because the spouse just plain isn't there. All right? Let me add that, and, that I am sympathetic to and yet extremely cautious about finding other grounds for divorce. And on the one hand, I think it's possible 
that God did not mean to give us every grounds for divorce in the New Testament. Jesus gave one, and Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mentioned another one in 1 Corinthians 7 that I haven't time to go into today. So I know that I'm opening Pandora's box. <laughs> and, um, but I'm just telling you, it's not as clean cut as you'd like to think it is. All right? And this is why each case needs to be dealt with individually. And it's also why we need biblical principles if we have something to apply in these gut-wrenching, difficult scenarios. And I believe with all my heart that the Bible talks deeply into these issues. And they're not as clear-cut and they're not as black and white as we'd like them to be. And in theology, I'm, I'm, I'm not a an academic, or right? I never went on to school or anything, but I know this. In theology, you must all use all of Scripture to explain Scripture. I know there's a word for that. Um, theophany, or is that what they call it? Theophany, something like that. Um, and so you use all of Scripture to explain Scripture. You don't just get one little pat passage and you say, this is what it means, all right? And sometimes there's a danger, especially in the right-wing thing, of doing that. So here, here's, again, what I'm saying is, some of you might think I'm too open-minded in this, but I believe Exodus 21 is a passage worth consideration. And Paul is saying to those who are married, you will face many troubles. He's saying being married is both brilliant and awful. <laughs> He's saying being married is both glorious and ugly. He's saying being married is both bad and it's good. But then being single, let's not just go to marriage. Being single is both bad and good. Being single is both glorious and tough. Let's not think that we're, it's all about, like having sex, sorry if any kids here, but having sex is not the fulfillment of life. If, if you feel like that, you're an animal, and we're not an animal. That's only animals think like that, that sex is the fulfillment of life. We're not animals. We're made in the image of God. Jesus, to my knowledge, never had sexual intimacy. He was, he he lived and died a single man. And I think he was pretty fulfilled. So forgive us all you single people who tend to think that it's all about being married. Because singleness is a very powerful thing as well. And so there's something so powerful about this. Life, adult life is tough. Adult life is tough. Sometimes those of us who are a little older would just love to go back to when we were kids, when life was simple and you could play with your friends and you could jump ditches and you could do all those kinds of things that we did in the country when we were growing up. Life isn't that simple. Adult life is complicated. It's not black and white. It's full of gray areas. And so divorce doesn't solve problems. This is what Jesus said. It just creates new ones. It's messy. It's hard. People get hurt. The couple, the kids, the extended family, the friends, everybody gets affected. Financially, it's devastating. Most divorced people experience some form of depression and loneliness and anxiety. And that's why in Malachi 2.16, God actually says, I hate divorce. That's what God says. He says, I hate divorce. God hates it. And he hates it for all the same reasons we do. He hates the things that causes divorce. He hates the effect of divorce. And while God hates divorce, he does not hate the divorced. Please hear me in this. And for some of you, God hates what you're going through. For some of you, God hates what you've been through. But you need to know this, that God loves you and has an amazing plan for your life. And it's not plan B, it's plan A. And some of you are in a bad marriage at the moment. And my advice to you is fight 
Fight for your marriage. Fight to keep your vows. Fight to keep your covenant with God. Because it's not just about happiness. It's about holiness. Fight for it. Hang in there. Hang in. Do it for God. All right? Before you even mention the word divorce, get tons of counseling, tons of help. Read the Bible 20 times over in the King James Version. Do 5,000 push-ups before breakfast and climb Mount Everest at least twice. Before you'd even consider it, that's my advice. Allow yourself to, allow yourself just to grow old together in a marriage. There's something beautiful about it. There's something beautiful about it. And for those of you who are single at the moment, maybe have been divorced, we have a divorce, we have a marriage policy in church. I wrote it years ago and have changed and Dave has helped me in that in recent years and trying to fine tune it and it's a, it's a work in progress. But we have four counts in why we would marry a divorced person. And we give scripture for it. So, we, um, so, so while, while we marry divorced people, there's many divorced people that I haven't married. Many I've said, look, I'm sorry, but that doesn't fall into the remit. All right? So just so you know that, it's really important. Because here's the thing. In a church like ours, if you're going to be soft at the door, you need to be strong at the core. If we're going to be a church where anybody can come, then we need to make sure we really know what we believe when it comes to these issues. So you need to keep investing in your marriage. And remember this. If you wanted to turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 3, verse 5, you'd find that God actually describes himself as a divorcee. That'll shock you. It's in the Bible. Jeremiah 3, verse 8, sorry. This is what he says. I give faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. God describes himself as a divorcee. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. So, um, to conclude, Matthew 5, Jesus was dealing with heart issues as well as practical ones. I love um, if James would come, we're going to worship a little bit, because I just feel I'd love us to minister tonight. I'd love us to talk into these things, because... Life can hurt, not just the divorce and adultery thing, but life can just be tough sometimes. And um, there's a great verse here. Um, yeah, I have it here. Um, and I, I sort of get the picture sometimes. of when I, when I think of this verse, I get a bit of a picture of this verse. I'll go up here to show you. I get a little picture sometimes that if you, if you look at this verse, you can tend to think that, that all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, and following the desires of our thoughts, like the rest were being by nature deserving of wrath. So this idea of sin, he's talking about the disobedient and the verses that lead up to this. And, and sin can push us and push us. And if you can imagine, I hope I don't fall off this, but sin can push us to the edge. Sin can push us right to the edge. And, and, you, can, and you, you, you feel, if sin pushes me one more inch, it's... it's it's just going to be catastrophic. It's going to be boom. Sin can push you right to the edge. The flesh, our own flesh can push us right to the edge. But I love this. But God. But God. And there's many times in my life I've stood here. I've stood at the edge. I've felt I've hung on at the precipice like, a, like hung, hanging on by my fingertips. And, and then I remembered this verse. But God. 
And God comes and he steps in and he pushes that flesh and that sin back and he takes you back from the precipice. Why? Because of his great love for us. God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. And so what I'd love us to do, it mightn't just be a divorce thing. It might be maybe a mom or a dad or something or tonight you're just struggling with some issue that you just need to but God. I'd love her. I'd love as we worship here tonight, I'd love you to step into this space. And then I'd love our prayer ministry team to move up in and just move around you tonight. I would love the prayer ministry team not to pray too many words, all right, but act as conduits of the Holy Spirit. I have a sense that the Holy Spirit wants to do a work in this room tonight, and so I think we, we need to allow him. And so as we conclude it, the big questions that hang is, what is God saying to me? Our whole idea tonight was around examine, search me, oh God. Try me, see God, is there any place that I'm standing at the edge that, that the desires of the flesh and the sinful nature have pushed me to a point that I feel if I go another inch, I'm going to fall off. God, tonight I'm just in this place and I'm, I need you. What does God send to you tonight? What is God actually speaking to you about that? Let's take a, a moment and allow that just to sink into your hearts tonight. What is God saying to you? What are you going to do about it tonight? This morning, we, we talked about this this morning about external responses bringing inner realities. I said to you this morning, for those of you who are here, that there's an invitation to come around the table of the Lord where your blessedness and your brokenness become balanced. <laughs> I love that. I, I was hot off the press this morning, but I, it's tweetable that. It is. Your blessedness and your brokenness become balanced. God invites us to the table. And sometimes in our Western civilization, we've made divorce the unforgivable sin. I had somebody sat in my office not that long ago who, who had a, a bit of a moral failure. And he said this to me. He said, a, a Christian friend told me just to get on with my life and to forget about ministry that God would never use me again. That makes me weep, it does, because I just think that is, sorry, I, I can't think of any nicer word than to say tripe. That is tripe. If God can take a David an adulterer and a murderer. God can take a Moses and use him to deliver his nation. A murderer. God can take any of those men. Surely he can take you. Surely he can take me. And, and, and you need to allow the but God into your life tonight. So what I'd love you to do, I'd love you just to, to respond tonight. If just there's some issue, again, mightn't be in the area of divorce, mightn't be in the area of adultery, and it's always weird when you do an adultery thing or lust, 
and you ask people to come up to the front for prayer because nobody's ever going to do that, all right? Let's face it. So we'll, we'll give you the excuse. It won't be for lust or adultery, all right? But for whatever it is, for whatever it is that's going on in your life, where you just need that but God, where you just need God to step in and say, God, I just feel at the edge. I feel like I'm in my last nerve. I feel like I feel like God, another step. I feel like another step and I'm gone. I feel, God, I just like I'm on the edge of the precipice. And right now I just need your hand of favor. I just need that but God just to push the enemy back and take me back into reality with yourself. Then this is your space tonight. So let's worship together and then I'll pray in a moment or two and see where it goes. Let's stand together. Let's start making our way into the space. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.